Open up your Bibles to Matthew chapter 28. This is going to be our, our theme text for the morning. Happy New Year's to you all. It is a new year, and so we've done a few new things. I sent out some notes for the first time in my entire pastoral ministry. I sent notes to you. I'm going to try to do that this year. We'll see if it's effective or not, but you can get that in your email. Um, But beware, when you pick up your phone to look at your email, the algorithm hates you. And the algorithm hates Jesus, and it's going to try to distract you with notifications and dings and bells and whistles. Don't let it get you. Look at your email and put it on silence and worship the Lord. Amen? All right. Or print it off before service. That'd be even better. All right. So next week, we're going to start a new series which is an old series, The Life of David. We're going to pick back up on on that series, and we're going to be looking at a passage of Scripture that is almost universally ignored. It's the passage of 1 Samuel chapter 30, where David uh, fights the Amalekites, and where the Amalekites uh, burn down his his city and kidnap his wives. Who, Who knew that David's wives were kidnapped? few people, but not many, not many. That's right. We'll be looking at that next week, and I think it's going to be a blessing to all of us. Um, But today, because our church recently added household baptism to our practices, I want to do uh, one sermon on that particular topic, and I'm also going to be preparing for little Theodore to be baptized uh, after the sermon, and he's ready. We'll hear him shortly, I'm sure. So let's get started with prayer, and then we'll read our text. Father, we thank you for your glorious Lord's Day. Thank you for a new year, for opportunity at renewal of our hearts, of our minds, of our commitments to you. And thank you, Lord, that week by week you keep your promises to us. We pray that 2023 would be no different, but in fact would blossom with more and more blessings. We pray, Father, that you would help us as we look to the Word of God this morning. Give us unity of mind. Give us growth in knowledge and in grace. And guide us in your truth. We ask that you would accomplish this by your Holy Spirit, which you've poured out on us. And through the preaching of your Word. In Jesus Christ's name, and all who agree, would you say amen? Amen. Amen. Well, let's jump in. Matthew chapter 28, starting at verse 16. You're familiar with this passage. It's a good passage to read at the beginning of the year. Now the eleven disciples went to Galilee, to the mountain to which Jesus had directed them. And when they saw him, they worshipped him, but some doubted. And Jesus came and said to them, All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Go, therefore, and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. And behold, I am with you always to the end of the age. That's our commission. And you see here that we are to go in the authority of King Jesus to disciple the nations, make the nations disciples. It does not say, just as a side note, individuals from the nations. It says the nations. And the way we do that is by baptizing them, that is the initiatory rite as they enter into the kingdom, as they enter into the church, and then also by teaching them to observe all of the law of God. And we've preached on this quite a bit, but I bring it up this morning to say that baptism is an absolutely essential aspect of our primary mission, our great commission. 
And so baptism is very important. It's important to understand. It's important to practice faithfully. It's important to uh, think clearly on and think the thoughts of God after him as it pertains to baptism. Now, in our day and age, um, rituals like baptism and the Lord's Supper have fallen on, on a hard times. People no longer see the value in them or quite even understand the significance of them. But it is very, very important for the Christian to understand and to faithfully practice both the Lord's Supper and baptism. And so that's why we need to talk about it, at least for this Sunday. So th- to that end, I'm going to ask a simple question, and then I'm going to try to answer it with a fire hose of information and Bible verses. So, you know, get ready. Why should we, why does Pastor Brandon believe that we should baptize the infants of believers, of believers? That's right. So first, let me start by saying what it's not or why we don't do it, okay? This is very important. It's not because they are innocent. Amen? We do not believe in a blank slate theology. We do not believe that infants are neutral. We do not believe they are born with the ability to choose God or not choose God. They are not blank slates. They are not innocent. In fact, they are conceived in sin, as the Bible tells us, and that they have the nature of sin. In fact, we baptize to signify that they need the Holy Spirit. They are not good as they are. This is also why you would be circumcised in the Old Testament, because you were not good as you were, and the promised Messiah would not come through the will of man, or his seed, or his procreation, but through and from God. Amen? So we don't baptize them because they're innocent. In fact, part of the reason you baptize is because they're not innocent, signifying their need of the Holy Spirit to be poured out on them. We also don't do it because they are cute. Right Now, Theodore is above average cute <laughs> and above average feisty. That's right. And, and we are very happy for that. But we're not going to be baptizing him because of his big black eyes and his full head of hair. None of that, right? Not because he's cute. Nor are we going to be doing it because of tradition. Now, of course, we love tradition as long as it aligns with Scripture, but tradition is not our ultimate authority. There are many saints... Martin Luther, Zwingli, Calvin, Bullinger, Beza, Knox, go on and on and on that, that fought and gave up their lives and saw their friends have their skin melted off of them by the fires to stand up for the truth over and against tradition. We don't exist except those men and those women lay their lives on the line for the truth because the truth matters and it is authoritative over tradition. So it is not at all because of tradition. It's not, in fact, even because they are infants. As you've seen a couple of Sundays ago, and as you will see, some of these children baptized will not be infants. They will be much older. We are not baptizing them because they're infants, though they do happen to be infants. We're not baptizing them because baptism saves. Let me say that very clearly. We're not baptizing them because baptism saves. Now, the word save has a lot of different meanings in this world. If you ask a Roman Catholic or an Arminian or a Calvinist, and if you don't know those words, don't worry about it. But if you ask different people from different walks of life what it means to be saved, you're going to get 10 different answers as to what it means to be saved. Does it, does it mean you walked the aisle and participated in that particular tradition? Or does it mean you were born again by the Spirit of God? Or does it mean that you were, uh, had your original sins removed by participating in the sacrament of baptism? What does it mean to be saved? 
And of course, we believe that to be saved is to be first regenerated by the Spirit of God. Of course, there's a lot more to it than that, but primarily in time and space on this planet, someone is saved when the Holy Spirit causes them to be born again. They are given new eyes and new ears, and they find themselves believing and rejoicing in the preached gospel. Amen? And if you are a Christian, you at some point in time were born again by the Spirit of God, and it did not happen to you through water, okay? Now, so we do not baptize them because we believe that it saves them. Only the Holy Spirit poured out upon them from heaven can save. Okay? Not water. Water is not magical. We're not superstitious. Now, there were those in church history that believed um, some strange Greek philosophy blended with the Bible, and they believed that the Holy Spirit actually did transfer through the water itself. Right? Um, not unlike the belief that the bread becomes the flesh of Jesus or the wine becomes the blood of Jesus, they believe the water became holy and transferred the Holy Spirit's regenerating power to someone being baptized. And so because of that false belief, they wanted to make sure their whole bodies got wet and they would take their clothes off, right? You don't want to have any obstructions from the magical Holy Spirit power with the water. But we, of course, don't believe that. This is a sign, It is not the reality. Amen? Let me say that one more time. This is a sign that signifies a deeper reality, but it's not the reality itself, which is why when it comes to church fights, you want to fight mostly over the reality, right? And not too much over the sign, right? Though we do want to think straight and get clear about it, right? So we're not doing it because it saves. We're not doing it because they are saved, They might be saved. Theodore might be saved. He might have already been regenerated by the Spirit of God. Now, how do I know that? Because there are examples in the Scripture where people are regenerated by the Spirit of God before they even come out of the womb. John the Baptist was filled by the Spirit and responded to the presence of Jesus in the womb. I'm not saying that's always the way it is done, but I'm at least saying it is done once and therefore it is possible. David says that he was trusting in the Lord from his mother's breast, which means that David, from some point in infancy to pre-birth, was regenerated by the Spirit of God and was having childlike faith, literally. Wow. So is Theo regenerated by the Spirit of God so that when he hears the gospel of Jesus Christ for the very first time, he will receive it immediately? He will exercise faith as soon as he can exercise faith with little childlike faith. I don't know. I don't know if he's regenerated or not. We're not baptizing him because he is saved. We're not baptizing him because it saves. So with all of that said, and I could, I could say a whole bunch more of why we don't baptize babies, right? But let me say this. The reason we do baptize them is because Theodore, along with the children of all believers, have a special status or standing before the Lord. Okay, let me just say it one more time very clearly. The children of believers, and this is revealed in Scripture, have always had, always had a special covenantal status sovereignly bestowed upon them by God, along with the blessings and rights that come along with that graciously bestowed status. Okay? Think about uh, your status as a Costco member. Right Now, your status as a Costco member was purchased by you, 
It's a works-based salvation, right? right? And, and with that status as a Costco member, and the sign included, you must show the sign, right? With that comes various perks and privileges. You can buy one of those gigantic teddy bears or a $7,000 bottle of whiskey, which I can't imagine, right? So you have a status as a Costco member, you have a sign, and you have the, the privileges and blessings. Now, should you reject that sign, cut it up, and turn your back on Costco? Well, you will lose those privileges and blessings. But being a Costco member, you purchased it, and it is yours for the keeping. In similar manner, children born into Christian homes are of a certain status. They didn't purchase it. Jesus purchased it. And they have the rights and privileges of that particular status. And the sign of that status or standing before the Lord is baptism. So why do we baptize babies real clearly? Because they have a particular status and or standing before the Lord, covenantally. This is why the children of Abraham were circumcised. We no longer practice circumcision. That was fulfilled by Jesus and the cross. But this is why the children of Abraham, whether they were biological children or adopted children, received the sign of the covenant because they had a covenantal status under Abraham. This is why his many men, and he had a a household of about 1,000 to 2,000 people, why all the men of the whole household received the sign of of the covenant. They received circumcision because they had status. They had a particular status. Paul mentions this status in Galatians chapter 4, verse 1. And I think we have that for you this morning. He mentions this in passing. He says, I mean that the heir... Now, what is an heir? It's someone with a particular status, having been born into a family or adopted into a family. He says, I mean that the heir, as long as he is a child, is no different from a slave. Now, what does he mean by that? In the context, what he means is that even if you are born with the status of an heir... You're a little prince. You're a little king. You still get your butt spanked. That's right. That's what he means. You still get spanked. You still get tutors. You still get training. You still, get to, you still have to say yes, sir, or no, sir. You see, even though you are an heir and you have the status of an heir, you are still disciplined and trained like a slave, like a bond slave, like an employee, right? But then he goes on and he says, though he is by status, by right, by birthright or right through adoption, covenantally, the owner of everything. See, this is how the ancient world thought. This is not how our world thinks. We think individualistically. We don't think of status being transferred to children, except in some situations. All right, I'll give it to you in another way. You were born into this world of no choice of your own, right? Really no choice of your parents either. You were born into this world, and if you were born in the United States of America, you were born with a particular status. You were born as a citizen of the United States of America. It is your birthright. It is your privilege. It comes with blessings and privileges. Amen? I'm proud to be an American, right? It's good to be an American. I was born an American. Now, of course, I could leave America and forsake that, but I was born an American. I was also born a Neely. I didn't choose that. It was bestowed upon me sovereignly, sovereignly administrated. I was placed in the Neely household, and I am a Neely. Didn't choose it. God did it. That's a certain status. You know, it may not be high status, but it's at least middle class status, right? (laughs) And it comes with certain blessings and privileges. I could renounce that later in life. 
change my name, rebel and hate my family, right? I, I could do that, but as long as I remain in my family, I keep that name boldly and receive the blessings and keep, keep covenant with my family, I'm a Neely, and my kids will be Neelys. They will receive that. Now, in similar manner, you're born into this world either in a Christian home or a non-Christian home. See, I told you we're not baptizing him because he's good or perfect, right? It's status. It's status. You're born. You're not born regenerated. That's not what I'm trying to say. You're not born, quote, saved. You didn't, you're not born having walked the aisle or making a decision for Christ or any of those things. But you were born in a Christian home, and you are a member of a Christian church. You're born within the walls. You're, uh, to, for, for lack of a better word, you're a Christ churcher. Theo is a Christ churcher. He's one of us. He's, God put him among us. Right? God put him among us. So he has a particular status. All right. <clears throat> Moving on, let's look. Um, if we have this status and we are baptized because of this status, what exactly is the status? How can we describe it? Well, first I'll describe it with this word holy. Holy. All right? That's from 1 Corinthians chapter 7, verse 14, if you want to look it up later. Children born into Christian homes are holy. This doesn't mean they are in reality holy. They have a status of holiness. That is, they've been set apart. They have been consecrated. That's what the word holy means. It means consecrated or set apart with a special status before the Lord. If you have a certain dishes that you put in a particular cabinet, you call it your fine china, you are setting those dishes apart. You are consecrating those dishes. They are holy, so to speak. And you only pull them out for their designated purposes. Fine china for fine people and fine occasions, right? And I, know, I don't know if people still have china these days, but that's what it means to be. That's one of the things that it means to be holy. Now, if you are set apart by God as holy... If you were regenerated by the Spirit of God and you believe in the gospel of Jesus Christ, one day when he raises you up from the dead and gives you your new glorified body, you will be perfectly and utterly holy in reality. But when you are born into a Christian home, you have the status of holy. It's in 1 Corinthians seven fourteen. Paul says it very plainly to the wife who's thinking about leaving her pagan husband. He says, don't leave him, otherwise your kids will be unholy and unclean. But if you stay married, the kids have a special status on account of you. Right? That brings us to our second thing that describes status. The children of believers are also clean. That's also 1 Corinthians chapter 7, verse 14. Now, this doesn't mean clean in reality. Although sometimes the word clean means clean in reality. Right? Um, it doesn't mean that they're clean in their, in, as in that they've taken a bath and shampooed their hair. It is very common language for first century Christians to understand. It meant, as a clean person, that you have access to the worshiping community, access to the throne, access to the covenantal community, right? Um, if you touched a dead body or if you became leprous, what would happen? You were now unclean. Your status changes. doesn't mean that you need to go uh, and scrub your hands because they're filled with mud. You have a status change and you are now alienated from the covenantal community and you no longer have access through the priests into the holy of holies. You're cut apart. You're set apart. But if you're healed of that leprosy, and of course you have to be healed, right? Which in those days might have taken a miracle. If you are healed, then to return back into the covenanting community, Numbers chapter 19, that leprous person would then be baptized. 
The baptism was the sign of their entering in, the sign of their cleansing, the sign of their re-consecration, or what the medievals called re-churching, back into the worshiping community. They were out because of the leprosy, but having been healed of the leprosy, they are baptized, Numbers 19, and then brought back into the worshiping community. So that it's a status change here, the baptism symbolizing the, the change of status. All right? Moving on, another one, Joel chapter 2, verse 16. Their status includes being members of the church. Notice how Joel, this is a new covenant promise fulfilled in Acts chapter 2, according to the Apostle Peter's word. This is not an old covenant promise. This is a fulfillment in the new covenant. Gather the people, that's the ecclesia, consecrate the congregation, assemble the elders, that's the hierarchy of the church appointed by God, gather the children, all the children, even the nursing infants, because they have a status under God and under his covenant let the bridegroom leave his room and let bride her chamber. It's a, it's a beautiful worship congregation. See, God doesn't look down on us as individual BBs or aggregate. He looks at us not only individually, but he sees us also covenantally. As a church, covenantally. And as a family, covenantally. See what I mean? And I would say also as a nation. In fact, the word federal, the federal government, is the Latin word for a covenant. So this is how our world, our Christian, our world, which once was Christian, believed. But it has been totally lost today. <clears throat> this is another part of their status. It's in Matthew chapter 19, verse 14. They are heirs of the kingdom. But Jesus said, let the little children come to me and do not hinder them. You'll remember the story. The disciples were holding them back. He said, no, let them come to me. And he blessed them. And he touched them. They had access. They, they were special to him. And he gave the reason very clearly, for to such belongs the kingdom of heaven. Now, some will tell you that this does not mean that those children own the kingdom of heaven or that these children are heirs of the kingdom of heaven. They will say it's people like these children which are heirs of the kingdom of heaven. But that is not what the word says. It says, to such, that is those and anyone like them, to such, those and anyone like them belongs the kingdom of heaven. And if the kingdom of heaven is theirs, and they are heirs, and they are members of the covenant community, and they are set apart by God and given access to God, that is a significant status which I believe we are called upon to recognize. And the way that is recognized is through the rite of baptism. Let's move on. Status is one thing. You know, being a, being a Costco member is one thing. Having the card is another thing. You know, you got to have that card. But the real thing you want are the discounts, right? The, uh, the, I don't know, made in China, you know, $2 a gallon honey. That's what you want are the benefits and the perks. So let's look at that for a second. What are the benefits? What are the, the blessings? Now, of course, there's cursings that come along with this as well. To whom much is given, much is required. But I'm not going to talk about the cursings today. I'm just going to talk about the blessings. It's the New Year's. So Isaiah chapter 40, verse 11. Look here. They have the love and affection of Christ. He will tend his flock like a shepherd. 
Christ Church, I know that you are not sheep farmers, but you know enough to know that he tends his flock means he tends his rams and his ewes, the male and the female sheep. But not to be unclear, Isaiah tells us very clearly, he will gather the lambs in his arms. He gathers them in his arms. This is a gospel promise. It is a covenantal promise. And I hope that you hear me trying to biblically persuade you from the text of Scripture, trying to rightly divide the Scripture from my heart as your pastor, as one of your pastors, to receive this, to hear it and to see it. He will tend his flock like a shepherd. And when a baby lamb is born to one of his rams and ewes, they don't go on the auction block to be bid on by any discriminate farmer. But they are the shepherds. They are the good shepherds. He will carry them in his bosom. He loves them to such a degree that he holds them in his bosom next to his heart. And even more than that, Christ Church, he gently leads those that are with young. Even in the womb, even in the womb, he is the shepherd. They are his sheep. Don't allow your systematic theology to cloud your ability to receive the text of Scripture. There are answers to many objections, but you cannot object to God's plainly spoken Scripture And expect to understand things later. You must receive it and say, God, I don't understand it. It doesn't harmonize with my my other understandings. But I receive whatever it means. I receive it. Help me to understand. Jesus so closely identifies with his children that he says in Matthew chapter 18 verse 5. Whoever receives one such child in my name receives me. He says, if there would be anyone who would throw a stumbling block or to cause one of these little ones to fall away, it would be better for them to have a millstone tied around their neck and to be thrown in the bottom of the sea than to offend one of these little ones. He holds them dearly in his heart. I've always believed intuitively that Jesus loved my children more than I loved them. And that gave me great hope. And that gave me faith in their eternal destiny that they would one time, at one point in time, receive the gospel unto themselves, having been saved by Jesus. I believed he loved them. And I raised them to believe he loved them. I believe this is the covenantal basis of what I believed intuitively, though I didn't know it at the time. If there are status for children, and, and there clearly is, there are privileges and blessings of that status. And we've seen a few already, but let me show you one more, a few more. Matthew 21, 16. Out of the mouth of babes and nursing infants, you have perfected praise. You want to hear perfect praise? Listen to infants and nursing babes. The gooing, the gaga, the cooing. The Lord receives it as much as he receives our praise. Out of the mouth of babes and nursing infants, he has perfected praise. Well, I don't quite understand how this could be. They were an unevolved fetus, which eventually matured into something, a more sophisticated life form, until they finally got to a particular age where they could then praise. That is all from our world. It is not from the Bible. The Bible says he receives praise of infants, and he perfects praise as infants. You want to praise perfectly? 
prays like a baby. So let them raise their hands. He receives it. Let them sing, even though they don't know the words or how to read. Let them make noises. He receives it. Don't hinder the little children. He receives them. There are also covenantal promises. Now, this one's going to be complicated. But if you can understand what I'm saying, the Bible will come alive to you. Much of this has been lost in church history, unfortunately, due to demonic attack and false teaching. But you can have all of that deconstructed if you could hear this one simple thing right here. It's in Ephesians chapter 6, verse 1. Children, he is talking to the Ephesian church, and now he turns his attention to the children of the church. He is not distinguishing old or young. He just says children. The children of the Ephesian church, which he earlier in chapter 1 called saints because they have a status of holiness. Saint means holy. But here, children, obey your parents in the Lord. Now, what does it mean to obey your parents in the Lord? Well, you're in the Lord, so obey your parents. It's his command. You're his. Now, this is not rote obedience. This is not legalism. This is the obedience that faith in the Lord produces by the power of the Holy Spirit. Obey your parents in the Lord, for this is right. Quote, honor your father and mother. And then he says, this is the first commandment with a promise. See, there's a promise there, which is the New Testament word for a covenantal promise. It's a synonym for a gospel promise. He says, this is a promise. It's the first commandment with a promise. And he says that if the children obey their parents in the Lord, not legalism, but a faith, a faith that produces obedience in the Lord, what will happen to them? God will respond to their faithfulness and give them covenantal blessings, which are, verse 3, that it may go well with you and that you may live long in the land. Now, Paul later interprets the land to be the earth. He's saying you want to live long and have a good life, which are covenantal promises delineated in various passages in the Old Testament and are shorthand for all the covenantal promises. Obey your parents. And life will go well for you. You will be blessed. You be faithful to me. I'll be faithful to you. This is a covenantal promise. Listen, that was spoken at Mount Sinai under Moses a very long time ago. Paul then takes that promise under Moses in the Old Testament. And he applies it to the children in the New Testament church. And says, if you are faithful, God will be faithful. And he will give you the promises that he said he would give you all the way back with Moses. And that's just one example. That's just one promise. We could look at hundreds of them that are for children because they have a particular status. But note very clearly, and I think this can help some of you. Note that their life does not go well. And they live long and prosper in the land automatically. What must they do? They must obey. And this is the obedience that comes from faith, which comes from the Holy Spirit. Okay? What is automatic, however, in the passage? Listen, Christ Church, what is automatic is that they have the promise. What is not automatic is that it is fulfilled. It can only be fulfilled. Grace can only come through faith. But even before they have faith, they have the promise. It is theirs for the taking. So. If I were to write a check to you, some of you remember those. And I put on there, if I put a million dollars, you would know this is a phony check. Right? (laughs) 
you would not believe my promise. Right? Let's say, let's say uh, 200 bucks. Okay. And then what would I do? I would apply my signature, S-I-G-N-A-T-U-R-E, S-I-G-N, my signature, okay, my signature. I would apply that sign to the check as a testimony to you that the money is in the bank, okay? Here is my promise to you. I will hand you the $200 check. I will sign my name. I will give my oath that the money's in the bank. If you believe me, what will you do? You will cash it, and the money will be there because I put my word on it. I signed it. If you don't believe me, you will never receive the money even though you had the check the whole time. The check was yours. I gave it to you, but you never believed in faith, and so you didn't get it. That's so, so hard to understand for us as raised in radically individualistic worlds that have completely lost the concept of covenant. But God has made promises to, his, to our children, and he has given them the sign. He has signed it with baptism. And if at any point in their life they receive that, money's in the bank. It will be theirs. If they do not receive it, if they tear it up and sell it for a bowl of stew like Esau, then what will happen? They will not receive it. In fact, let me read John chapter 15, verse 2. This is what happens to apostate children. John 15, 2. Every branch in me, branch in me, Jesus is saying every branch in me that does not bear fruit, he takes away, the father takes away. Every branch that does bear fruit, he prunes. Now, we want our children to be pruned, not taken away. Amen? And we trust the Lord that he would do this for us. But if they are in him, in this sense, and they do not bear fruit, and they do not obey and follow him, they will be taken away. And that is a tragedy, a great tragedy. But it is something that happens. Listen to what Hebrews chapter 10, 28 says. And I'm almost done, so bear with me. Anyone who has set aside the law of Moses dies without mercy on the evidence of two or three witnesses. This means if you were born under the Mosaic administration of the covenant and you were under that law and you set it aside, then you would probably have to go to trial and and after due process and two or three witnesses, you'd be executed. But you still might go to heaven. But in the new covenant, you can see this. How much worse punishment, says the author of Hebrews, trying to convince the New Testament Christians not to forsake, not to fall back into Judaism and apostasy, but to persevere. He says, how much worse punishment. The New Testament is not less scary, it is more scary. How much worse punishment do you think will be deserved by the one who is trampled underfoot the Son of God? If you apostatize in the Old Covenant, it's bad. But if you apostatize in the New Covenant, it's much worse. He says, look, how much worse will it be for the one who has profaned the blood of the covenant? This was the verse that bursted my wineskins and caused me to go back to the scriptures to reconcile this with the rest of the gospel. Because this verse right here is the key to understanding a lot of this. Anyone who has profaned the blood of the covenant by which he has been sanctified. He's been sanctified. That means he's been set apart in some way consecrated in some way by the blood of the covenant. If he falls away from that, 
how much worse will it be for him? He goes on to say, it is a terrible thing to fall into the hands of an angry God. That's a New Testament verse. But, and here's the good news, Christ Church. If in faith they receive this status, God put me in a Christian home. I'm in a Christian home. God, I never even chose this. He surrounded me with Christians. Here I am and I find myself in a church. Surrounded by faithful Christians in a family. Wow. That's because you're a covenant kid. God has promises for you. And see, we can grab them by that status, so to speak. Say, hey, hey, God didn't put you in this family and give you all of these blessings for you to do that and to live that way. He loves you. Now respond to that sovereignly administrated love and faith. You see, it is God who initiates It is God who sovereignly administrates. It is we who receive. If in faith they receive the status, they will get more than the sign. They'll get the sign. Theo is going to get the sign now in a few minutes. But if he receives this in faith, he will get the reality. He will get more than a water washing, symbolic water washing. He will get the washing of the regeneration of the Holy Spirit, if he hasn't already. He will get more than the sign of holiness. He will become truly holy. He will get more than the sign of God pouring out the Holy Spirit upon him. He will get God. For God promised him, I will be God to you and to your children after you. And he will get more than the sign of union with Christ. He will get Christ. Amen. All right, come on up.